Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no, thanks for joining me. I know uh, you and I have been sort of chatting offline a little bit about doing this for a little while. And um, no, I just, uh, I appreciate your uh, perspective. I think you have a lot to offer, uh, you know, the broader community, both as a patient, but also just as a very insightful person. And, you know, it's clear you're very, uh, attuned and on top with all things happening in this space. So, you know, I think we're going to have a really interesting discussion. I think so too. Like, uh, I think another word for it would be obsessive. Maybe <laughs> there's probably, there's probably a clinical definition for whatever it is. Myopically focused on GLP one medications, obesity, all the things, right? So I appreciate your kind words. And of course I have, always enjoyed your content. Uh, it's ever since I came over, I haven't been on TikTok for all that long. I've been over on TikTok for since July, I think is when I started actually making content. Yeah. Um, and so it's just been cool to, to learn from people like you. And, you know, I think of like Dr. Daniel Rosen and there's just, there's so many great people in the community. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to come chat. It's nice to meet you. Yeah. I love uh, maybe just for the people that aren't familiar with either of us, either because they're coming from your channel or mine. Uh, maybe we can do some quick intros and then we can jump into some fun discussions. Um, I don't mind starting off. So for the people that don't know me, I'm Dr. Mike Albert. I'm an obesity specialist. I run the virtual obesity practice called Accomplish Health. You can kind of find our details here in case you want to become a patient of ours. Um, and then I sort of spend some of my free time on this app and, and other social media apps educating about kind of all things obesity related. And that's how I think you and I connected just because we have overlapped in that regard um, and have a similar network in many ways. So uh, that's about as much as you need to know about me. I'll, I'll hand it off to you for your own intro. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Loaded. So my journey was a journey to this community. Uh, we'll just try to keep it narrow was basically a diabetes diagnosis that I got back in 2021 in the fall. Um, oh. I've been making, I made a couple videos today. I've got a little playlist going that I'm just telling my story. Right. But the, the elevator pitch version of it is I was diagnosed diabetic in 2021 and I did everything, man. I, I white knuckled through that entire 12 months. Um, like I had white knuckled through every diet that I'd ever done, but this time I was going to get it right. This time I was going to get keto right because now I'm diabetic, right? And my doctor was drilling it into my head and I was drilling it into my own head. And, uh, so I went a full year. Actually, I lost seven, I was weighed 319 at the beginning of my diabetes diagnosis. After a year of strict keto, I was at 312. I lost seven pounds. My A1C was great, but I was like, doc, I do not lose weight on this diet. Uh, we got to try something else. So anyways, he's like, bariatric surgery is probably the route for you. You're an anomaly. You're an outlier. Everybody on this program does well. It's just you and three others. So I, I said, I'm open to anything. You know, I, I wasn't thrilled about the idea of bariatric surgery at 37 years old. Uh, to me, that was a very scary thought, but also so was living a life of, of chronic obesity and metabolic disease. So, uh, he said, 
well, since you don't have insurance coverage for it, there are these medications, right? And he said, basically, this is the way he framed it. And I've heard you sort of echo these things. And I'm interested to hear more from you about this. But he said, there's these medications that actually accomplish what we've found that bariatric surgery accomplishes in that it helps to restore these gut hormones in this, in this gut microbiome. And, uh, they're, they're doing it with medicine now and they're getting better and better. So I want you to try this medicine called Manjaro. And I was like, the kind of guy who wouldn't really put anything into my body unless I knew what it was. And so I endeavored to learn everything there was. Of course, I wasn't on TikTok. I think that people like you have been here for a while talking about these medications, but on YouTube, the only people that were talking about it were just talking about it in terms of I'm using Manjaro and I've lost a hundred pounds in six months. Mm -hmm. And so that got me excited, but it didn't really tell me much about the medication. So mm -hmm. I just did a ton of research into these medications and, and then became obsessed. And when I really became obsessed, I started making content, uh, just sharing my obsession. I always tell people I've become somewhat of a GLP one evangelist in the sense that you learn how these medications can change people's lives. And it's hard to sort of keep that to yourself. So that, that was my journey to YouTube at first and then ultimately I had some viewers over there that was like, you really need to get on TikTok." And so I, I was drug over here kicking and screaming. And then, oh man, I've learned so much from people like you since I've been over here on uh, TikTok. Well, I, thanks for sharing your personal story. I didn't know you were going to go into that depth, but uh, I appreciate it nonetheless. And, and that's really cool to see sort of how you uh, developed and cultivated that interest. Um, very personal, mind you. Um, just quickly, Thea, Didi, Karen, thank you all uh, for the roses. And I just didn't want to miss that. Um, so maybe let's just jump into it. I, I think uh, certainly I'm sure you have some questions, uh, you know, you want to pose me and I'm just going to start off with, a, you know, maybe of a little bit of a softball, but I think something I, you know, cause you and I nerd out about this stuff all the time in our own right. But, you know, what are you most excited for in this space, either that's already here or that's coming that you've kind of kept your eye on. And, and, you know, I, I want to, I'm going to challenge you. You know, there's obviously like the easy, you know, easy ones. I want you to think more abstractly, maybe something the viewership may not be aware of that you've sort of heard about more recently. Um, you know, what, what's really interest, what, what, what's, uh, you know, really stoking your interest these days? Yeah, that's a, that's a solid question. So obviously when I first started, I got really into the ratatotrides, um, more, and, and I was kind of myopically focused at first on Lily because I was learning about terzepatide. Uh, but really, I think more recently, I'm really interested in the idea of, and I'm not super well versed in this, uh, in, in other, um, in other hormones, classes of hormones. Right. But I'm really interested in Kagrasema. Um, I think that gets talked about very little compared to Redotrutide or Retatrutide, however you want to say it. Um, I, I'm interested in that because learning more about um, amylin and how that affects actually, you know, this satia satiation and combining that with the slower um, gastric emptying that the GLP-1 and semaglutide causes. I think that one for, for my own personal journey, because like I'm at this point where, um, 
where the medicines really aren't doing, they don't do for me what they do uh, for most people that are going to come across these medications. I would definitely on the spectrum of responders, I'm more towards the the non-responders, although I don't think that's very fair because it's like, what are you responding to? I've responded very well from a diabetic standpoint, uh, an A1C and glucose control, but from a, 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 you know, a hunger control, a appetite suppressant side effect, I haven't really responded, right? So the amylin agonist is what really kind of gets me excited, though I am um, excited more about like um, what some of the like servodutide, right? People don't talk about that one very much. We we saw some information drop on servodutide, which is uh, it's basically it's Behringer Engelheim working with uh, I can't remember a uh, uh, obscure small pharmaceutical company. Uh, yeah. And that one has some really promising results for our friends that suffer from, you know, early stage liver disease. And, um, you know, those are those are really exciting. I think, you know, you could talk about bimagramab interzepatide. You know, Eli Lilly purchased um, Catalent earlier in the summertime. And you talk about not only like with bimagramab, which they're testing, combining with terzepatide, not only to preserve muscle mass, but, but actually building muscle mass. And so I'm in, intrigued in that because, um, you, you think about the benefit metabolically that building muscle, you know, can give a person who, who suffers from obesity. So, I mean, there's like a hundred directions you could take that, but I'm excited that we're approaching bariatric surgery level results with medication and that the medication has such a safe side effect profile in general. Um, I think that gives a lot of hope to people like me who are younger, who are maybe, although I'd like to get into these are some of the questions I'd like to ask you. I am a little bit more reticent to talk, to have the discussion about going under the knife and having my anatomy rearranged. It's just less appealing to me than maybe it would be if I was in my mid forties. Right. Um, so yeah, those are some of the ones off the top of my head that I'm pretty stoked about. Yeah, those are great. Uh, you know, listen, from my standpoint, uh, there are so many things I'm excited about, you know, and I, I, I share, share my thoughts frequently on this app. Um, I think maybe something that people aren't aware of, uh, just to sort of, uh, interest others from, you know, things coming in the pipeline. Uh, I'm in, I'm involved in, in, um, sort of advising some, uh, some groups in, in development and sort of long-term strategy and treatment development. So I have some unique insights that way. Um, so I can't share everything because I have some, uh, I've signed certain contracts and things, but, uh, what I will tell you is I think the, the metabolic drugs that are coming that no one's really even heard of. So up to this point, most of the drugs that are very effective in helping to manage weight and obesity primarily work by modifying appetite. Right. So they, they work on the brain at multiple levels to modify appetite. And, um, that's how they primarily work. Um, we have a number of drugs. You alluded to some, you know, getting into muscle tissue development and, um, anabolic, uh, you know, tissue specific anabolism, which is just like grow, growing certain tissues. But there are some things that are coming out that are completely novel in terms of their mechanism. Um, I believe Novo purchased one of these companies. Uh, it was a Canadian company who was developing uh, a, a selective peripheral uh, cannabinoid, endocannabinoid inhibitor. 
And what that does is it helps to establish leptin sensitivity in the body again. And part of the dysfunction in obesity is that the body becomes resistant to leptin, particularly in the brain. And leptin is one of the key hormones that helps to regulate uh, metabolism, helps to regulate um, appetite. And one of the things we believe to be involved in why obesity develops is the body stops responding to leptin in the way that it used to. And so what they've been able to show in early studies is like resensitizing leptin basically completely ameliorates um, or resolves most metabolic issues. And they've shown that in rodents and now in early phase human trials. So stuff like that, there's mitochondrial and couplers that'll increase energy expenditure. So you're going to burn more calorie, particularly for people we identify that have low energy expenditure and a bunch of peripherally acting drugs that are going to be working on mitochondria, fat oxidation, you know, leptin sensitivity and all this. So there's a lot of interesting kind of peripheral drugs that are in the pipeline that are very early stage that I think would be very complementary of some of the more purely appetite acting drugs because they're sort of addressing the other side of the spectrum as it relates to obesity and metabolic disease. That's awesome. Uh, I, I'm curious. So I was watching um, as, as one does, I drive around the state and I sell x-ray equipment as a, as a day job. And so I, I've had a lot of opportunity lately to listen and just nerd out on, you know, I, so for example, I was listening to an NIH symposium from the end of last year before ZepBound came out, but I was very interesting because we were hearing from some of the early researches, researchers in dual agonists. And, um, one of the things that, that I heard them talking about, which I'm curious to know more about was, they were talking about how in the early stages they were working on, you know, like uh, just giving people, I may be saying this wrong, but just basically giving people amylin, um, just straight or or maybe whether it was just a straight amylin agonist or if it was a synthetic amylin and how that did not work. Why, why is that, does that play into the sensitivity that obesity causes somewhat of a resistance to it or you get numb to it or I don't know, whatever the clinical term is. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of the uh, pathophysiology, part of what goes wrong in a lot of individuals with various manifestations of metabolic illness is that the body doesn't respond to hormones in the way it should. The signaling that helps to regulate metabolism and metabolic health stops working. Probably the most well-described hormone in this capacity that most people have heard of is you know insulin and insulin resistance resistance by its definition more technically is the body is not responding to the same per unit amount of insulin right so it requires even higher amounts to trigger the same physiologic response insulin resistance amylin resistance glp1 resistance and so part of what we're trying to uncover is how can we undo these resistance uh, states um, or there are certain drugs or certain pathways that we can leverage to undo the resistance such that the signaling kind of goes back to normal. And um, on the specific topic of amylin, because I know you've sort of uh, indicated you have particular interests, amylin's been diff- so amylin's difficult. It's this interesting hormone that gets co-secreted with uh, insulin from the beta cells in the pancreas. People who lose beta cells because of their diabetes. Diabetes 
is um, one of the hallmarks of diabetes is the loss of uh, insulin secretion capacity. So in type 1 diabetes, you lose all your beta cells. You can't make insulin, which is why people give insulin themselves. In type 2, you lose about 50% of your insulin producing cells at the time of diagnosis. Most people don't know that. It's a form of organ failure, just, just like type 1 diabetes is. And, and so you lose the amylin producing cells too because it come, it gets secreted together. And uh, amylin is, is this sort of really critical counterpart and colleague uh, of um, insulin helps to improve insulin sensitivity, helps to improve the action uh, and processing of nutrients, helps to regulate appetite as part of a natural feedback mechanism. And so you can imagine in a world where you're resistant to these hormones, your body actually destroys the cells that produce these hormones, you're not able to channel and have the right type of signaling that the, it's going to disrupt a number of things. Um, one of those things being, you know, appetite and, and, uh, the challenge from a, uh, a pharmaceutical development standpoint is that traditional amylin therapies have been very short acting and they degrade very quickly. That was the historical issue with GLP-1. GLP-1 in the body has a half-life of like 10 seconds. It gets degraded re really fast, which is why I laugh all the time when people are like, do this diet or this supplement to increase your natural GLP-1 production. It's like, you have no idea how GLP-1 acts if you're making that comment. There's no diet, no lifestyle approach that will naturally increase your GLP-1 to a level that has the same effect of taking semaglutide or terzepatide. And that's not how the physiology works. So they've been able to now manufacture long-acting amylin such that it has a prolonged signaling effect. And that's what's coming in the form of cagrolentide, which is now being paired with semaglutide in, in, in the combination therapy cagrosema. So we are, we are leveraging these pathways that have been disrupted and we are, uh, on some ways, more potently stimulating the receptor to get it to work again, um, kind of overcoming some of these resistance uh, cases and allowing the body to kind of reestablish normal physiology. It's incredible. With uh, to to kind of dovetail on what you're saying about beta cell function and the the degradation of beta cell function in type two diabetics. So um, way back I want to say maybe like eight months ago or so, I came across this little study that a doctor in uh, New York had had put together. It was like, it was only like 10 patients, but they were all type one diabetics and they were all newly diagnosed type one diabetic patients. And he put them on semaglutide. Mm -hmm. And what he found, what they found in a study, and I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right because it's been eight months, but mm -hmm. it was something like eight out of the 10 patients were able to come off of their uh, prandial insulin. And I think all of them were able to come off their basal insulin or something like that. But essentially the, the inference was that there was a preservation and perhaps somewhat of a restoration of beta cell function in type one diabetics, newly diagnosed type, like where there was some beta cell function, it seemed to have improved and maybe even, um, I don't know, what the proper medical term, what, what, preserve the beta cell function, which yeah. is incredible. Yeah. I mean, so that's the holy grail of type one research. How do we stop the body from destroying the beta cells, which are our insulin producing um, tissues? And um, I know the study, exactly the study you're talking about. So GOP, GOP1 is this amazing, incredible peptide. Um, 
one of the really cool properties that we found, it's this really smart protein, right? So um, it, it goes in and it tells the, uh, the pancreas, particularly the beta cells, when to appropriately release insulin. That's what makes it such a cool diabetes treatment is it doesn't tell your pancreas to release insulin without nutrients being present. And so one of the misconceptions is that GLP-1s cause hypoglycemia or low blood glucose. That's wrong. They don't. It's actually a functional or smart uh, insulin, uh, blood sugar lowering drug in that it tells the, the pancreas to secrete insulin only in the presence of appropriate nutrients. One of the other effects it has on the beta cells, and this is what's so cool, is it turns out it helps to reduce the oxidative stress. That's one of the critical final steps that causes the destruction of beta cells. And it's the oxidative stress that is happening within something called the endoplasmic reticulum in the beta cells that is one of the final straws that leads to the degradation and degeneration in the beta cells. And so by preserving that and by reducing that stress, by literally de-stressing the pancreas, Early on, what they were able to show, now we don't know if the effect is prolonged, if it's temporary, right? If it's just delaying the progression or what, but what they're able to show is they quite literally preserve beta cell function. Incredible, just by giving people GLP-1s very early on in the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, they were, they were able to save some of the pancreatic function and, and prevent people from becoming functional type, having functional type 1 diabetes. And, and come off insulin dependence and all that. And so GLP-1s do that for people with type 2 diabetes too. And that is one of the critical functions that they have in people with type 2 diabetes is it helps to prevent further degradation of the pancreas, which is ultimately what why type 2 diabetes um, results in insulin dependence over time, is that is the eventual complete destruction of the insulin-producing cells in people with type 2 diabetes. And everything we're trying to do is to pre preserve that capacity. So GLP-1, I mean, I'll go on for days talking about how cool GLP-1 is. One of the coolest things that most people don't appreciate is how it it is so smart in the way it talks to the pancreas, how it defends the pancreas. And it's so funny because the original blowback from GLP-1 in the early days that, that raised alarms at the level of the FDA was, it increases your risk of pancreatitis. It increases your risk of pancreatic cancer. Turns out that was all malarkey and baloney wasn't based on good data. Um, and if anything, and now we now have data that supports, if anything, it helps to preserve pancreatic function and boost the function and capacity that you still have. And I think that's just way cool. That, that is way cool. I mean, so, so it spurs another question that has been rattling around in my brain. It's cool to have just like a, a, GLP-1 dictionary uh, at my disposal here. Um, you like chat GP, you chat GLP-1. Um, so I want, I'm wanting to know, so we're obviously big pharma has been sort of myopically focused on GLP-1 uh, because, you know, you had the Gila monster and exenatide and, and then it kind of became this game of, of, of increasing the half-life to yep. make it a once weekly instead of a once daily. Uh, and now you see like, uh, Amgen with their, with their monoclonal antibody once a yeah. month, and they're, they're saying they're playing with that. They could be even make it longer. Yeah. Uh, so. Obviously, we've had this focus on GLP-1. Then you have uh, the researchers that came along and came up with coagonists. I'm, what I'm 
wanting to know is that, so you talked about all the amazing things that GLP-1 does, but under the class of incretin therapies and, and the different hormones that are involved uh, there, what what do some of the other incretin hormones have to offer that maybe GLP-1 doesn't or what can they do better? Like, I think we're kind of seeing that right now in the drugs that are being developed, but what's your kind of take? Yeah. So, so, you know, there, there are three primary incretin hormones, DPP-4, GLP-1 and um, uh, GIP, right? Like those are the the predominant um, hormones. DPP-4 is not very interesting. It turns out Um, GLP-1, which is, a, a, a more port, mo, more potent uh, regulator of the same pathway is why ultimately pharma went away from DPP4 and and moved towards uh, modulating GOP1 instead. So GOP1 and GIP are the most interesting of the, the known incretin. Glucagon, mind you, is not an incretin therapy. Glucagon, which is being involved and being combined in some of these newer uh, combination therapies, not an incretin. Um, but so, so really the question is, how is GIP different than GLP-1? And I've seen you speculate uh, based on your personal experience. Uh, and I thought that was a really cool uh, video where you just shared your personal perspective on the differences between uh, semaglutide and terzepatide. And the simple answer is we don't know. <laughs> so the simple answer is we don't actually know what the novel, uh, you know, the novel additive that GIP is bringing to the table. Um, here's what I would speculate based on the basic science research. Um, and, and the reason I say we don't know is there are some studies that suggest when you activate GIP receptors, it reduces hunger. It has this additional appetite suppression and uh, other effects. And then when you block GIP receptors, the same thing happens. So people are like, well, what does that mean? When, what do you mean? When you block a receptor and when you activate it, 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 it triggers the same response. Something's not adding up. The reality is that that's what we've been able to show in rodents and in humans and modeling studies. So the moral of the story is actually the, the, the research community doesn't really know how GIP works. Like that's a fact. And at least we don't know what it's sort of adding on top of GLP-1. And that's probably a better way to frame it. But it's clear, um, it's clear something. Tinkering with it one way or the other is beneficial to some extent. Although Amgen, the uh, the Amgen monoclonal antibody one that I talked about, that's GLP-1 and GIP, but it's a GIP antagonist. Correct. Um, and so that – but but I think one of the interesting things about that trial is <clears throat> that you see side effects go way up. Um like the the nausea, the vomiting, and to the point where, and it was a phase one trial, so it was like you know very small sample size, but a lot of people quit quit out. Like the highest dose that they were testing, half of them quit. Uh, so it's just interesting to see like they can tinker with it and they get good results. So you got one company going one way and one going the other way. Yeah, I mean this the development gets really esoteric and. You know, it depends. They have to find the right balance of how strongly the protein um, activates a receptor. They can they can mess with that level of affinity for the receptor and how strongly it activates it and binds to it. Um, they can mess with the half life, right? That you've talked about already. Um, they can do all these things, and and they do, and they play with it, and then they can obviously mess with the dose, which has another you know 
additive effect. So uh, they're doing all of this. That's what a lot of their exploratory basic research is. And that's what some of the phase one trial is trying to tease out. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think what you've seen is that the differences between all these companies are exactly that. There are differences in half-life. So some of these molecules are staying around in your body longer. Some of them are activating receptors in a different way, more intensely with greater binding or a binding to the receptor in a slightly different way. And it all is going to trigger a slightly different response, which is why some people are saying, well, dulaglutide works this way and semaglutide works this way and you know, exanatide works that way. That's exactly why, because they have some different features. The molecules are not the same. They're not the same. And, and so, you know, it's really fascinating to see GIP um, just to sort of uh, speculate here. And I'm curious to hear your personal perspective, because I have not had the, uh, the opportunity to try uh, a purely GLP-1 um, and then the combination GLP-1 GIP agonist. Uh, but my speculation from taking hundreds and thousands of histories and monitoring patients is that what terzepatide does uniquely that maybe semaglutide doesn't is that it has a more potent response on what's called the mesolimbic system or the hedonic centers of the brain. And that's the area that a lot of lay people refer to as uh, producing food noise. And um, in fact, there's some new research done out of China and John Speakman, who is one of the foremost experts in uh, basic science research into appetite, uh, that has looked at the pro uh, looked at this issue and are increasingly recognizing, we'll use food noise just to, to simplify for people, food noise as potentially one of the primary drivers of weight gain um, in modern uh, forms of obesity. And, and the reality is, if you develop dysfunction in that part of the brain, what it essentially does uh, that creates this quote unquote food noise is it subconsciously drives you to eat. It subconsciously uh, teaches you and, and conditions you to engage in certain behaviors. And it provides a subconscious reward and reinforcement around that activity. So all of this is being primed in you, all of this is being driven and all of this is being memorized by your subconscious brain. So when people act like you can just will away obesity, the reality is all of this is happening subconsciously. You don't have, you don't have the ability to affect this process other than maybe turn off the entire world, but that's not realistic, right? So I think terzepatide, the reason it's so unique is that I think it has that really unique and strong effect on modifying the food noise activity in the brain. Yeah, uh, that's definitely been my experience. Um, so first of all, when you said we're going to, for for the lay people, we're going to just talk about food noise. That's me. I'm the lay people. Uh, so yeah, food noise uh, is a huge, it's like night and day for me. But I realize my, my experience is my experience is other people who have the opposite experience. And I think that plays to the molecules, what people's receptors are, their physiology and their body that's different from person to person. So, you know, there's no like blanket. I, I started on Manjaro and I went to Ozempic, right? Like, cause Manjaro stopped working for me uh, from a weight loss perspective. So having tried both, I think my, 
my own personal take on it is that GLP-1, and I just recently learned from this NIH symposium about the ratio that, that terzepatide is 5 to 1 GIP to GLP-1, where obviously with semaglutide and liraglutide, you have just a GLP-1. Um, I think that GLP-1 is more of a blunt object against hunger. It's like it's a, you feel like I feel uh, ozempic in my gut. I can, like I can I just feel uh, fuller when I eat because of the slow digestion, um, and that's waned over time. Also, like the uh, initially when I first started semaglutide, it was like whoa, I'm you know I could I could just feel my body digesting things slower. So that's what I mean when it's like a more of a blunt object where. Terzepatide with the GIP seems to be more like a stealthy ninja. Like it's doing something, but you're not necessarily feeling it uh, in the same way that you are. I am uh, ozempic or semaglutide. Uh, so I think there's definitely something to that uh, food noise. It just, you don't think about, for me, it wasn't that I was, it wasn't ever that I couldn't eat. It wasn't ever that food repulsed me. I mean, you hear so many different stories anecdotally, but for me, it was just, I just didn't think about it. Um, there could be, um, you know, my favorite meal in front of me. And it was like, I was indifferent to it. Um, could I eat? Yeah, I could always eat. Um, so, yeah, I think that for me is, is kind of what it was, uh, or, or is I want to go back to Manjaro for that reason. Like my life has changed. I'm driving every day, uh, for work. There's a lot of boredom involved in driving around for eight hours between stops at different hospitals and clinics and, there's a lot of, of uh, food noise in between stops, right? I mean, when you're bored, your mind is wandering. Uh, like, I think I'm kind of hungry. So I think I could use that silencing, but also it's a far superior medication from a, from a glucose control standpoint for whatever reason. Um, on the GLP-1 to GIP ratio, I think I'm, I'm really interested in this Vikings therapeutic, Viking Therapeutics molecule um, that they've been in the news a lot lately. It's, was rumored that Lily was going to buy them and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a GLP one GIP agonist. Mm -hmm. And the, the weight loss seems to be though. It's only been in phase two trials seems to be much quicker than it is with terzepatide. Uh, and so I think over the, you know, the phase three longer trials, I think you'll see more weight loss on average than we do with terzepatide, even though it's also a GLP one GIP. Now that could play into the molecule part that you're talking about. Like it could just be a superior molecule, I suppose to, but part of me wonders is if they cranked up that GLP-1 a little bit more than it is in uh, terzepatide, right? Um, yeah. Because there's a huge notif noticeable difference, I think, in in the in the appetite suppression, the actual physical slowing of the gut with semaglutide. So that's my experience anyway. Yeah, that's super interesting. I saw the headline and and, and uh, obviously shared it in across my social media. Uh, so to just echo what you were saying, uh, Viking Therapeutics, um, you know, released uh, the top line or the preliminary results from their phase two trial that is going to uh, be more formally presented, I think, probably at the up one of the upcoming academic conferences. Um, I think the ADA is next. So I suspect probably there. American Diabetes Association, for you who don't know that acronym. There'll be a lot announced there, by the way. So people will want to tune in and I think it's in May or June <clears throat> this year. So, but yeah, I mean, they had 13 point something percent weight loss at 13 weeks. 
And if you compare that to say like terzepatide, uh, which has, you know, to date the mo- had the most pronounced weight reduction long-term of any uh, approved drug, uh, you know, that, that is beating it by some five or 6% at that same time period. Uh, I think terzepatide had like seven or 8% at that same mark. Um, interesting. Amgen's very weird. You know, they're kind of approaching this from left field. Wow. There's, got, you know, 14, 15% at their highest dose at that same period. So it's even better than Viking, but, uh, you know, clearly we're understanding the science of these molecules in a way that we just never did even 15, 20 years ago when they first sort of hit the market. Um, and it's exactly right. It's just sort of teetering with the affinity, uh, to your point, terzepatide has less affinity for native GLP one receptor than, um, uh, and, and, and so like you just play with these things and you see what they do and they, they look at them in rodents first. And surprisingly, the rodent models have been very predictive of how the humans would do in terms of the, um, uh, the sort of range of responses. Um, and, and so that's been a really good model to predict like human response. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, whether it's Cagrosima that is in phase three, Redditrutide in phase three, or Forgalpron in phase three is gonna be the first oral small molecule uh, GLP-1, which is gonna be amazing for manufacturing. I've been such a big proponent of that. Um, or any of these other combination, uh, new combination therapies. I mean, there's just so much to be hopeful about. And I know that there have been some plugs in the comments. So just wanna be, Thankful for everyone who's who's engaging, who's donating, who's giving, who's gifting, and and I think someone mentioned uh, shouldn't go without mentioning uh, TROA, the Treat and Reduce Obesity Act, which has been something that has been pushed. It's set to help modernize obesity drug coverage, obesity service coverage in healthcare for both um, Medicare beneficiaries, but also set a new standard in healthcare in terms of what should be covered and what is the standard coverage for people with obesity. Um, you know, if you want to be involved, get involved in your local chapter, trying to promote treat and reduce obesity act or TROA, um, with your local advocacy groups. So that's my little plug for today. Yeah. Yeah. The treat and reduce obesity. Act. I mean, anytime we're waiting on Washington DC to do something, it's, it's frustrating, but I think what people maybe don't always understand is, once the once the public sector sort of adopts something, the private sector tends to follow. Right. And so uh, obviously, I think, you know, I have lots of people that I interact with. I'm not a, a physician. I'm just a dude. But I interact with so many people on these medications. And I think that the most underserved population is arguably the population that, you know, could benefit maybe the most because of the level of um rates of obesity and diabetes uh, just in the Medicare population, right? Because they don't get access to the savings cards. They don't, uh, you know, they're completely excluded from any help uh, outside of, of Medicare that may come from the manufacturers. And so uh, I would love to see the TROA uh, act passed as well. It's something that we talk a lot over on my YouTube channel about, um, you know, the other thing, you know, that I'm always advocating for is people talking to your insurance benefits coordinators at work. Like everybody tends to have this idea that it's the insurance companies that are blocking them from these medications. And I mean, they, they do their damnedest to, to try and do that. But, uh, you know, with, with 
prior authorizations and just gumming up the lines with paperwork to delay things and everything. But it's really your employer who chooses those um, coverage options for your plan. And so they're the ones to start with. And and I think Kim, I'll borrow a line from Kim uh, over at the plus sides. You know, she's always like, if your company is big on diversity, equity and inclusion, that should be part of your conversation with your employer. Like, hey, I know that we talk a big game about this. Uh, obesity is a disease and it's something that we ought to be uh, treating with with these new age treatments. So, yeah, in addition to Troa, it's, it's always kind of the second part of that conversation is be talking to your employers. And and there's never a wrong time to do it. Right. Because it's it's, you know, late summer, early fall where they're starting to make those decisions for the following year. So it's a great time yeah. to start now. Yeah, no, I think that's so important. It's a great, uh, great point. Uh, so many people aren't aware of how much influence their employer has in developing the formulary and the benefits package and what is covered. Traditionally, your employer either opts in or opts out of what's called what's known as the weight loss rider. And if they opt out, that means they're not going to cover medications for obesity or chronic weight management. And, and so there's typically this all or nothing phenomenon that has at the happens at the level of employer in terms of coverage benefits. And so, you know, one thing you can promote uh, within your HR department, get a group of people together. There's power in numbers. I can tell you I've been involved in some of these advocacy efforts with some of my patients. And when they've had more employees get together in groups, create Facebook groups and then sort of all, you know, just like getting on the phone with your senator, getting on the phone with their HR person. Change has happened. I've been surprised and, and, and employers are receptive and increasingly they, you know, when employees are starting to talk about, you know, voting with their feet, um, they start to listen because it impacts their bottom line. And, and ultimately, that's what they care about. So um, absolutely great point. I'm going to pivot a little bit and I would love to get your thoughts on. We talked a lot about weight loss, about the future, about these medications We've talked a little bit about diabetes as well. What are the sort of um, maybe uh, unplanned, unintended, but but really interesting or compelling benefits that some of these drugs may have? You know, it could still be speculative that you find really interesting or compelling. And um, are there any sort of areas you'd love to see kind of further uh, you know, further investigated and described in terms of these non-weight related benefits and non-diabetes benefits, which everyone kind of is aware of. Oh man. Every question that you ask is like a question that I want to hear your response to. Uh, but for me, I think the obvious, the obvious one is, uh, in, you know, how these medications affect addiction at large, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, when we talk about, uh, yeah, I still just saw a study, uh, that came out this week. It was about, uh, sem- Tied in the reduction of uh, cravings for opioids in people who are addicted to opioid medications. Uh, so, and obviously, we've heard uh, about uh, studies being done with uh, semi- semaglutide and alcohol. I believe, uh, you know. So, so how how GLP? And you were referring to uh, the area of the brain that GLP one uh, medications uh, or incretin medic medications seem to work on, and just seeing those studies done more and just seeing, you know, people who are 
you know, so desperate, you know, we, we tend to, we, we fight a lot of battles in this community about getting people to look at obesity as a disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's a whole nother world of people who are saying the same thing. And that, that, the people in that world are called alcoholics. And, and, you know, these are people that struggle with disease, uh, propensity for overconsumption of alcohol based upon their genetics. And, you know, so to see like a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe for some of those folks who just haven't been able to quite kick it with medication therapy, uh, whatever it may be, I think these medications hold a lot of promise in that regard. Um, you know, and I'm not on the up and up on those studies, but gosh, anecdotally, I've heard from so many people that you know, I used to drink every night. Now I don't even want to look at booze. I've heard from people who were addicted to gambling, who were always at the casino and they just don't want to go anymore. So there's just so much to learn. I think they're about the pleasure reward center of the brain and how these medications can possibly impact that. But I want to flip that question around and ask you the same thing because I'm you, you know a lot more about this than I do and, and are on the inside of some of this stuff. What are you hearing and what are you seeing and what are you excited about? You know, I, I mean, I think the substance use disorder and compulsive behavior like is ripe for disruption. I mean, we've had really lousy medications in terms, historically, they've had ton of side effects, um, have been really hard to tolerate. Like uh, one of the original drugs that was approved to treat alcohol use disorder um, literally worked by making you sick and throwing up. It doesn't allow you to metabolize alcohol correctly. So the metabolite makes you sick and throw up, disulfuram. Um, and that used to be court ordered for people when they would have like DUIs and stuff. I mean, just really barbaric things. So it's really nice to have these drugs that might have kind of multidimensional health effects, maybe able to help people with some compulsive behaviors because it's acting on that part of the brain that we've already talked about. Um, I think that's wonderful. And, and so, you know, the, All of these groups need attention. They need focus. It's not, you know, to be honest, that area is not sexy for pharmaceutical companies. I can just tell you from talking to a lot of pharmaceutical companies, it's not exciting for them. There's just not a lot of money they view. But I think when we can leverage and repurpose in these other fields that are attractive for for like these novel indications, I think it's wonderful. And frankly, I think probably we'll find that uh, some of these incredible therapies or as good, if not better than anything that's ever been developed for addiction. And I, I believe that wholeheartedly because I've seen it in the work that I do. I've seen all the studies about it um, in the early pilot studies that basically your jaw would drop. You know, uh, people go from what qualifies them as having um, a use disorder to no longer qualifying as having a use disorder by their because their consumption or use goes down so significantly. I mean, just life changing stuff. So I, I think that's that that I totally agree with you. I'm going to I'm going to just add in a few kind of more obscure ones cuz I like just I like to talk about things that a lot of people aren't maybe are not aware and everybody knows the cardiovascular benefits now. That got a lot of attention. So I won't I won't sort of belabor that. Um two two areas I'm really excited. I've read the data. I actually gave a keynote lecture at uh USC a little over a year ago talking about the potential in this area. And then um uh, the other area I'm super excited about, I'll, I'll sort of uh, briefly talk about. So one is the immune system. So part of uh, part of the one of the sequelae or consequences of obesity is chronic low-grade inflammation and immune dysfunction. Literally, your immune system doesn't work correctly. It increases your risk of infections. It increases your risk of severe infections when you do get them. It causes chronic inflammatory. Um, a chronic inflammatory state, which puts you at a ho- at risk of a host of other health problems from the inflammation. 
So being able to modulate the immune system with these drugs, which has now been proven in a number of studies, is really exciting. And I can tell you there's a lot of data now that's emerging that not only does it reduce inflammation, it helps these other biologics and immunomodulating drugs for other autoimmune conditions work better. It helps them to work better. People that are being treated for lupus, RA, Sjogren's, psoriatic arthritis, they, they're responding even better to their existing therapies. That is such a blessing. So like, I'm really excited about the immune applications. And the other one is the neurodegeneration. We have virtually no good treatments for dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, this drug has already shown really good promise in the early basic science research in animal models. We're actually able to show, show that it preserves nerve function and helps to regrow nerves and keep them from degenerating, which is the, 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 one of the primary issues with neurodegenerative disorders, you know, self-explanatory. I think that they're going to show in some of these new perspective studies that um, some of these incurred drugs actually reduce the risk of Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, um, neurodegeneration. And I think that's going to be incredible because we, we have virtually no good drugs for those people. And it's one of the saddest um, group of diseases ever because these people literally lose themselves. I have family members who have had Alzheimer's. I've lived it where they, they lit literally lose who they are. You lose your brain, you lose your personality, you lose who you are. You forget who you are and you forget how you relate to your world. It is one of the saddest groups of diseases to, to watch someone go through and to think that we might really have... I mean, it's, it's a blessing. So I, I'm cautiously optimistic, very, very cautiously optimistic that um, we'll be able to help these people um, and hopefully prevent some of this stuff from happening. I mean, it's just a tragedy. Just as we were talking, so so I, I 100% feel you on both of those. My wife has rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, both of my grandfathers um, had, well, one grandfather had dementia, the other had Alzheimer's and died uh, just last year. Uh, of Alzheimer's. And then shortly after he died, my grandma was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Diabetes runs rampant in my family. So this is something that I've followed as well. Uh, I'd love to, to get some more information from you on the, on the, like, if there's anything specific about rheumatoid arthritis, I've been talking to my wife a lot about that as well. Cause anecdotally, I've heard from many people, I, I have rheumatoid arthritis and it's, I'm going off my medication and it's like, wow, that medicate medication, the biologics for rheumatoid arthritis are intense yeah. and expensive. Um, and so, uh, but on the Alzheimer's side, I remember reading early on when I was just getting into this, uh, how, uh, the, the, there were studies going on with semaglutide that they were finding that semaglutide was actually helping to reduce amyloid plaque buildup in the brain. And as I understand it, you know, it's just cursory understanding of this stuff. Uh, the amyloid plaque is kind of what contributes to the degradation in the brain that, that leads to Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure we, we really know. I think we have a lot of speculative beliefs that need to be, you know, proven out and, and demonstrated in humans. I think they're, you can show a lot of different things in rodents and they don't, most of the time they actually don't translate to humans. So it's very rare that that you see that sort of con consistent, you know, correlation. Um, so they need to do the studies, but I think the early studies that it preserves um, the, the neuron function that it helps to remove some of that destructive 
protein um, characters that that the sort of bad actors, as you're describing, these sort of misfolded proteins that cause um, all sort of problems with the way the neurons can then function. Uh, I think that there is real hope that it can have a meaningful impact on that entire um, state. And so uh, I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, based on some of the early data and we'll have to see. And, and, you know, and if that, if that were the case, I mean, it'd be, it'd be tremendous. It'd be a real blessing. And I I think, you know, as you start to list things uh, it, it just, that's what's so amazing. That's why I'm I'm sort of uh, uh, obsessed as well with these proteins. Is that like it's you know you just go down the list of potential benefits. I mean, we've talked about liver health, cardiovascular, diabetes. We haven't even talked about the kidney health. Uh, you know, the nervous system health, immune system. I mean, is there any you know organ system that doesn't benefit on some level from this? I mean, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. So. Uh, these, these peptides, incredible. It turns out they are just a miraculous little molecule. And the fact that we've been able to leverage them in such powerful ways already and potentially find even more ways, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's amazing. And, and it's, it's such a fun journey to watch and, and, and then really be a part of with many of my patients, see them improve so many different aspects of their health beyond their weight. As I always say, these all these weight independent benefits and, um, you know, it's it's incredible. And so, uh, you know, I get it why people like yourself are really interested who've lived it and have benefited. And and then it's 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 incredible. We're, we're in sort of a golden age of medicine and, and pharmaceutical development. Absolutely. Yeah. Just to kind of dovetail off what you're saying, I think the I saw a really interesting slide when I was <clears throat> watching a Eli Lilly presentation somewhere where they were comparing just uh, 20 years ago how long it took from a, a drug sort of inception to market. And it's happening right now at a clip, I think of a, around six years where it used to be nine years, 11 years, 12 years. And so not only are they developing uh, molecules faster and you'll see that accelerated by, I mean, you can't really, it's sort of crazy to watch Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk right now who just have money to spend. Like they're just spending like money is no object. So it seems like every day, every other day, you're hearing about a pharmaceutical company that's gobbling up some AI company. So, you know, not the AI component can't be understated here because the AI can run, you know, millions of hypotheses and, and kind of come up with, Hey, this is the road you might want to go down. So how fast that's going to even make this even better. Um, but then, you know, being able to bring it to market much faster. And I, I really appreciate that the FDA uh, gets quite, probably nobody gets more shade in any of my videos than the FDA, but I really appreciate what they've done with allowing the fast track of some of these medications like servodutide or servodutide uh, that we were talking about early on, which is the coagonist from Behringer Ingelheim. Uh, you know, they just released this phase two trial data for um, uh, MASH. And when you think about that, uh, they, they have the fast track designation for that if they go through with phase three trials. Now, phase three trials are going to be really costly because you've got thousands of patients and the only way to measure is to do liver biopsies on all of them routinely throughout the trial, which is going to be crazy expensive. But, you know, to think that if they go through with that, that the FDA is going to turn around and be quick about getting authorization, I think is really, really awesome too. So yeah, 
they're coming fast and furious. They're getting de- they're getting discovered faster with AI. They're getting developed faster with the efficiencies of of these companies. And and so um, it's just an amazing time to be alive. And it's hard not to get excited about it, especially. And you're getting a little emotional. Like I feel the same way, man. I. And I think probably many people in the chat, same thing. We've all been touched by people with uh, with uh, Alzheimer's, with autoimmune diseases who suffered from these things. And especially Alzheimer's is an especially tough one to watch. As you said, to watch somebody just kind of lose themselves. Uh, there's a whole nother grieving process. You know, I can't imagine. I've heard from, you know, I, I watched it happen to my grandpa, but he was in his 90s, right? But you know, I've had friends uh, who are a little older than me who have had parents that, you know, go real, their minds go real early. And so to think of not being recognized by the people that have raised you and it's just to think that there's hope and to think that it's coming so much, it's not coming fast enough ever for us as Americans. We want everything like in the microwave, right? But um, it is amazing, an amazing time to be alive. It's hard not to get excited. Yeah, no, I, and and I think one thing we haven't talked about, so Servidutide sort of uh, provides a perfect entry point for that is this whole glucagon mechanism. So we've talked a lot about the anchorin I said glucagon's on an anchorin. It's what we call the counter-regulatory hormone for insulin. So it does all the opposite actions that insulin does, um, uh, which it means it raises your blood sugar and does all these other things. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so it's, it's a really interesting, we never really quite nailed the glucagon until the GLP-1 paradigm came out. They've looked at glucagon drugs for a long time. And, um, and my understanding is glucagon in its current marketed form is really just what type 1 diabetics take when their sugars go super low, right? Yeah, they, we, they give it to uh, individuals who have like they overdose on beta blockers and things because it's an antidote and, you know, it, it, you know, exactly when you have severe forms of hypoglycemia, things like that. So uh, it hasn't been used in a more chronic illness therapeutic sense until more recently in combination with these GLP-1, you know, uh, paradigms. And what's really unique about glucagon that you'll hear more and more about as you see pimvidutide, who I can't pronounce any of these drugs' names anymore, servidutide, uh, you know, God, they, they don't make it easy on us, do they? <laughs> I feel like I sit here and I'm like, Martabard, Cafraglutide, I can't say any of these names. But um, but glucagon is so fascinating. It, it is the first drug that we have that appears to safely increase energy expenditure. And it increases fat oxidation at the level of the liver, which helps, which is the, we believe to be the primary mechanism by which it helps to reduce uh, uh, fatty liver disease and in the more advanced form of fatty liver disease is called is now called mash uh, metabolic associated steatohepatitis which is which is scarring that's developing on top of the fatty liver disease and that is the step that precedes liver failure cirrhosis we haven't had really any good drugs to address that and we've now shown terzepatide servidutide there was a new stage three drug for a thyroid hormone, uh, a beta receptor thyroid hormone agonist. All three of them have shown meaningful reductions um, in, in, in MASH, which is like basically in stage liver disease. And th- we've never had anything do that. Even semaglutide was not never able to show a clinically meaningful effect in MASH. It was too advanced. Servidutide showed like 83% response rate 
um, which is incredible. The vast majority of people saw reductions in fibrosis. That is permanent, what we used to believe was permanent scarring. They saw reversal of that in 83% of participants. Just unheard of. Absolutely unheard of. The liver is. Unbelievable. And they proved it because they biopsied those livers. So they know for a fact that the histology, which is just looking under a microscope, showed that the liver wasn't scarred that anymore. Not to the same degree, at least. Incredible. I mean, the unbelievable, like, once again, we are in this golden age of medicine. We are not going to, I mean, I know you feel this way. I get excited about it, but it's just hard. I'm in this like elbow deep every day and I can't even keep up with the, the drug news that comes. I'm like, what did this drug and this drug, what? So. Well, I appreciate the fact that you, um, you are so passionate about what you do, what you do, passionate enough that you give your time outside of your clinical hours to just educating and informing and spreading the gospel about, you know, all that can be with these medications and not just confined to the Incretin class. I mean, just, just an exciting time to be, um, you know, in touch with what's going on in, in the medical world. And I, it's just, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I know I speak for the entire community when we say you are an indispensable part of it. The, the content that you share, the, 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 I mean, it's just, it's just so helpful to, to always be able to kind of know what's around the, around the curve and to give people hope. I think that's a huge part of it. You know, like, you know, for me, this journey has been, you know, the, the GLP one journey has not been what I hoped it would be for me. Um, so at times, especially being a content creator, so like there's extra pressure. It's like this dude's been talking about Manjaro for a year now and he doesn't look any skinnier on the videos than he did when he started. Uh, you know, like, so there's an extra pressure of knowing that people are, you're kind of under a microscope, but then not having the medications work for you in the same way they do other people. But to know, like, I know that there's major advancements in not only um, this class of medications, but advancements even in bariatric surgery and how, what they've learned about bariatric surgery and keyed in the different kinds of surgeries you can have and the way that they're done. And, and, you know, so having it not be bariatric surgery isn't what it was 25 years ago. Um, so just knowing that there are options is a real hopeful thing to know. Like I've always got options that I can, you know, we'll try the next thing. We'll try the next thing. Um, so yeah, it's exciting. I appreciate all the all the information that you share. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's tough. I, I you know I, I run into this issue every day with patients of mine. Well, you know I'm not responding like that person on TikTok, and and I think it's really hard. And I, I, we talk often about comparison is the thief of joy. Your journey is your journey alone, and um, you know uh, what health like what health looks like to you is going to be different than someone else, and and it can take many different forms. And what we work really hard on with patients and we, we, we acknowledge, like I tell people in the first appointment, literally, like this is an iterative process. It may take many different forms. My goal and my responsibility as a collaborator with you on this journey is to help you find the right treatment at the right time for you. And once again, that may look like a different thing today than it does a year from now or six months from now. Um, but we got to find what works for you at that time based on your context, based on your wants, preferences and needs. And that may start by looking like something like Munjaro and may end up with something like bariatric surgery. 
And it just depends. It depends what you want out of your life. It depends on what's what can help us to achieve those goals of yours and what things that I'm worried about and kind of finding the balance of all that. And ultimately everyone will figure out what's right for them. And, and my job is only to make sure that they're maximally informed along the way. Uh, absolutely. And I think you do, you do a fantastic job of that. Um, would you mind if I asked you somewhat of a personal question about your own journey? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for all the gifts and things along the way. I'm sorry if I missed them. But yeah, please fire away. I'll do my best. Some of them are hard to miss. Um, so I'm curious because I've been wrestling with this in my own little corner of the world lately. Uh, has obesity been ever, anything that you have ever struggled with personally? I mean, I've struggled with my weight at times for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I've, I've had periods, you know, one of my sort of darkest health hours um, was coming out of medical school. I had sabotaged my health so much. This happens to a lot of medical trainees and even physicians, like some of the most unhealthy people I know are other physicians. Not that they don't know. It's just many of them sacrifice their health for their profession, professional pursuits. And, you know, we stay up studying long hours. We work night shifts. Uh, many of my nursing patients will tell you how hard that is on the body to shift your circadian rhythm back and forth. You know, uh, it's, it's terrible, horrible on your body. They've done studies that like physicians have uh, caused DNA malfunction and DNA breaks from all the stress and lack of sleep and stuff that they acquire. So, yeah, I mean, I was in really bad shape at, at one point. Um, so, so I've definitely struggled with my weight on some level. Uh, you know, I don't want to sit here and act like I've struggled to the same level as many of my patients. Um, but, but I have empathy for struggling with my own personal health and for my own personal journey in that regard. And, and I understand everyone's journey is different. So, so I, I do my best to empathize. It's not always easy. Um, and, and so my, my, what I found to be the most effective is just to be a good listener and, and to listen to each person's journey and understand and try to respect it in the best way I can. I don't always get it right, but I think, um, the more that we can listen and, and, uh, and, you know, just be there to be supportive. I think that goes a long way. Absolutely. I think the reason that the reason I asked the question is it seems that I've only ever been treated for my obesity, um, by doctors that have never been obese. And I don't think that that's somewhat, some sort of a prerequisite, but I do often wonder when I come across people like you, there, there are a handful of you, especially over here on TikTok, who seem to have, whether it's a gifting in, in empathy or, or something you've worked really hard at or whatever it is, it's very obvious that you have it, which is why I asked the question, like, is that what it takes for a clinician to, to know how to approach the conversation? Because it doesn't matter what doctor I talk to. They're like, you, this is what you have to do. You got to do, you got to eat less and you've got to move more. I mean, even the ones that, you know, I understand that that's hard. I like, I, I want to just like write on a billboard and say, that's what I've done for 20 years. Like, give me something else. Give me something. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, I've white knuckled, you know, the, and I'm sure my story is not unique. It's, it's been this roller coaster for me. It was keto, right? Because, and I shared this on, on the videos that I've been doing a little series of like, here's just my journey of from obesity to today. But, you know, I can remember at a very young age, 
I was eating an orange and I know I noticed I had a little tummy. I was never a real overweight kid ever, but uh, I always had like a little tummy and my friends didn't. And uh, I remember eating an orange because I was like, I want to eat healthy. And I, I asked the person who I was with, I was like, this is healthy, right? And they're like, that's nothing but empty carbs. And I, and I remember that I was tw- probably 12 years old. Uh, I remember that to that di- to this day. And I remember that as like an inflection point, like um, carbs, bad, carbs, bad. And so then when I, uh, started to put on a little weight after high school. Um, I went from, you know, a, probably a pretty normal weight to up to 225. And I was like, I got to do something. I got to get rid of carbs. So I did the Atkins diet, lost 50 pounds, got down to 175. Uh, but, you know, I only maintained it for six or eight months before I crashed on it and gained back that plus more. And then the next 16, 17 years of my life looked exactly the same. I would lose 30, I would gain 45, I would lose 30, I would gain 45 until I got up to 320 pounds. And so, um, and diabetic, right? And so when it seems like every turn that I've been met with, it's like, you need to eat keto, you need to eat keto, you need to eat keto, and you need to eat less and move more. Um, And it's like... (laughs) If that would have, if that, if I was good at that, if I did, if I could do that and sustain it in a meaningful way, I'd absolutely do. But you got to give me more than that. You got to give me more than eat less and move more because I've tried that, but it's never been sustainable for me. How can I make that sustainable? And I guess that my question and all that to you is like, how common is that story in, in one iteration or another? And how does one go about finding that balance of like, how do you sustain something for life, right? How do I find something that's not white knuckling and saving it for life? And part of it is these therapies for sure for me, but you know, I mean, how would you advise somebody? Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, and, and definitely sharing your personal experience. I mean, there's sort of a lot to unpack there. I think on uh, your, your, your personal story is shared by many. So uh, both the frustrations in, in engaging with society, healthcare on multiple levels. I, I think most of the issues in healthcare around treating people with obesity in the way they deserve to be treated has to do with ignorance. So there is still a tremendous amount of ignorance in healthcare among healthcare workers of all kinds, including physicians. It is mostly due to the fact that there is very poor education about the science of obesity. I never received any education and I'm a relatively junior doctor by all measures. I sought it out later in my career um, and and got specialized training in education. So I am very unusual. I have education that less than 1% of all doctors have. So if you take a random doctor out of a hat, you'll find someone who is grossly ignorant and incompetent in treating people with obesity. That That's unfortunate and that should not be that way. So that's part of the problem. To the, to the, to the sort of second question about how do I find sustainable health, which I think was sort of embedded in what you were discussing. And it's a challenge. One of the things that I would tell you about this whole legacy messaging around eat less and move more and just got to do it forever and exercise discipline to the best of my understanding, and granted, we're refining the science, but I tell all, all our new patients this, and I felt like it's the most effective way to communicate the science in, in, in a basic basic level. 
is what happens in, in most people that develop weight problems and that have this sort of progressive weight state that emerges throughout their life is that the sensor in their body that is in charge with telling them how big they should be gets turned up way too high. And there is a, there is a moment in time where that occurs. And that sensor can progressively be reset even higher. And, and so this weight thermostat's turned up too high. And as a product of that, the environment starts to take shape in reflection of that weight sensor being turned up too high. The body starts to put on more fat, all of the consequences of that. And our historical messaging around this has been, you need to eat less and move more. That is the, effectively, that is the equivalent of opening a window in a room where the thermostat is set too high. It might cool off the room a little bit. It might provide a short relief, but it's not a long-term solution. That ever, any logical person would understand that the key is to turn down the sensor. It's not to just open up more windows. That is a losing strategy. That is an ineffective strategy. That is an inefficient strategy. And ultimately what happens is the sensor realizes the change that has occurred based on the window and it, it you know, creates compensatory changes. It counteracts those efforts. And ultimately the temperature goes back up. Maybe it has to work a little bit harder to compensate for the window, but it, it will do it. It will 100% do it. And so what these medicines, what surgery is doing ultimately is it's helping to manage the sensor that's not working correctly. That's the part that most people miss. They, they think of it as a willpower issue. It's a, they feel like it's a deficiency of open windows when it's an issue of the sensor the whole time. Yeah, and so when you, when you ask me, how do, I, how do I like deal with the sustainability of it? The problem is your body doesn't want you to have sustained success. That is part of the dysfunction of the disorder of obesity. And that is the challenge that many people living with obesity will have to reconcile. It is also the miracle and the promise of many of these novel therapies and novel approaches, including novel surgery, you know, novel surgical techniques, is they help to address the sensor in ways that the window never could. That's incre an incredible analogy. Um, and and I think you've you've put into words, you know, what I what I've wanted to hear from a from a doctor a, a medical a dumbed down <laughs> medical explanation of why uh why your body fights back against so hard not and not only uh from from a metabolic standpoint but from you know how your brain's wired uh because these i always tell people when i uh when i try to describe what obesity is to people, people tend to think again, like you mentioned, that it's a morality thing. It's a it's a willpower thing, um, and that you just need to to do better. Um, I think the way that I like to describe it to people is it, it's it's a disease that affects the mind, the body, and the spirit. It's like equal parts all these things. I feel like we've always been so focused on the mind. Like if you would just will yourself out of obesity, then you'll be out of obesity. But it's like the other aspects of this that people miss. And I think you've put that into such great words from a physiology standpoint with the analogy of the open windows and the thermostat. So when you talk about the thermostat, just 
out of curiosity, and maybe there isn't a clear answer for this right now, but what is like, if you're going to uh, say the thermostat in your body is this, is that, is that a, a whole bunch of things? Is it one specific thing? Like yeah. what is bariatric surgery addressing? What, what thermostat is bariatric surgery addressing? So the thermostat is an abstract conceptualization of the dynamic interplay between all the various systems involved with regulating energy homeostasis. So that is like my technical answer. Um, And the thermostat represents the energy balance in your body. And the problem is the thermostat is set too high, the energy balance is set too high, and thus the body wants to be larger, bigger, hold on more fat, hold and preserve more energy. It is complex, as you can imagine, because any number of these systems can go wrong. The gut is involved. The gut microbiome is involved. The hormones from your, you know, coming from your gut that interact in the various organs, including your brain, are involved. Your nervous system is involved deeply. Um, all of these things play a role. And so I am simplifying it significantly but but it it is it is pulling out the, the the important sentiment out of that is all of this dynamic interplay that's happening internally and that and the signaling that's being disrupted is resulting in this state this state of of too high too high a thermostat that's what it is too high thermostat and so um, that's why I think that analogy is so effective is it ultimately still gets at the sentiment which is. The body has this dysregulated, dysfunctional perception about how your body should function, how your body should manifest and and react. And it's not thinking logically. It's not thinking based on what you want for it. You're not consenting to this process. That's the other thing that I always tell people, you know, as we talk about sort of addressing their internalized bias from all the societal conditioning they've had to tell themselves that they're failures and should hate themselves. You're not consenting to this process. I've never once met a person who was like, oh yeah, I was opting into this. Like I've never, never once said that. And we know that we know that from studying it. And so uh, I, I think it's important to appreciate the nuance and sometimes breaking down that, uh, breaking that down into a way that um, I think, gets at the heart of the issue, which is um, the body is struggling to perceive uh, what it should be perceiving. And, and, and because of that, you have this consequence. And, and, and that's, that's the other thing. We've been so myopic in our focus on weight because weight is so visual. We see weight. Weight is one of the first things that maybe people appreciate when they sort of, uh, you know, when they look at someone, you know, call it what it is. The, 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 why that's so backwards, what I'm talking about, the weight thermostat has nothing to do with weight, like at its fundamental level, weight is a symptom of this system that has gone wrong. Weight temperature has nothing to do with the thermostat directly. Temperature results from the actions of the thermostat, right? The heat in the room is because the thermostat signaled to the heater to turn on. Thermostat's not directly linked to the temperature in the room, you know, conceptually. And, and that's, that's where I, I want people to sort of flip their conception. Weight, fat, is just a symptom. It's the symptom of the underlying disease. 
The disease is the broken thermostat. And that's, we need to flip the conception of what obesity is. At the end of the day, obesity and the physical manifestations are just a symptom of the underlying disease. That's amazing. Uh, wow. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't mean to leave you with too, too, too much for tonight, but, no, but I mean, it's important it's just, stuff. We talk I mean, a lot it's about just it. So, it's so refreshing to hear from a medical professional who can articulate medically what we've all been feeling. And I think that's what, that is what you, what your perspective is, what needs to be cloned in obesity medicine, just the ability to, to not, I, th I think there's a lot of medical professionals who would say obesity, it, it's, it's a metabolic disease and blah, 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 blah. But I don't know how many people say that and actually believe it and don't still kind of go in their head. Yeah. But he needs to move more. He needs yeah. to do this or he needs to do that. And like, I'm not, I'm not knocking lifestyle. Like these are all, you know, there's a lifestyle element to all of this, but it's like, it's as if, people who are obese have never tried. And like, there's been a six month period out of every year of my adult life uh, that I've been trying harder than anybody's ever tried to do anything <laughs> to, to get a handle on it. It's just that, that that level of effort is not a sustainable effort. Not, uh, not only from a physical energy exertion thing, but sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's, it's got to do with external circumstances like having children or raising children or having a stressful job or whatever these, you know, extenuating circumstances in life. It's not sustainable. And it's like it for me, it was always like every time life hit a major road bump, it's like the first thing that went was whatever that rhythm or routine that I had been dedicated to. That was the first thing that went. And but so my point in saying all that is like. I still think that with a lot of medical professionals, even with the science advancing, there's still an element like, yeah, they just haven't figured it out yet. They, they'll figure it out. Um, and it's like I, I'm at the point in my own journey, and I don't mean to, to hijack your, your stream and make it about me, but I'm at, I'm at the point in my own journey where I'm like I, I just don't know where to turn like, cause I know I'm not turning back to, to the restriction and the, and the overexertion because that I know how hard that pendulum swings back the other way. I want to find what is sustainable for life. And so I'm at this weird point where it's like, is that surgery? Is that medicine? Is it a combination of both? Not to, not to say that diet and exercise don't play a part in that whole role, but, um, but whatever that diet is, whatever that exercise is, will be something that I enjoy, <laughs> something that fits into a lifestyle um, that is not, you know, a constant punishment to myself for being fat, you know, which is what it's ultimately felt like for me. So, yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could give you some more positive or encouraging signs. I think these things are going to take time to undo the training and conditioning that we've all been subjected to over years and decades, even for healthcare workers that may in theory know better. It's going to take time. I mean, I still battle actively. I have to be proactive with my biases, even at times from things that I just grew up sort of thinking, saying, and not even, you know, not thinking about them when I made comments. And, and so 
you know, and I know as well as anyone, you know, regarding these things. So I, I think it, the narr- you know, the narrative is unquestionably changing. Is it going to change fast enough where it needs to be so that people who really need the help get the help they deserve and don't feel stigmatized along the way? No, it's not. It's not going to change fast enough. Is it going to change? I'm very optimistic that it will change. It will take time. And um, I think one of the blessings of these drugs is that they've made us have very important and sometimes uncomfortable conversations about this stuff. But I think there's been a lot of growth from these discussions. I think it's forcing healthcare providers to really reconcile with their beliefs regarding things like weight and obesity. And that's important and can be uncomfortable when your whole world gets turned upside down, you know, from what you have long perceived or believed that it was maybe a, a failure of willpower or some moral failing. And turns out that you may be completely wrong in that regard. Like, you know, that's a hard thing to reconcile with. So I, I think things are changing. It's not, it's not going to change fast enough, certainly not fast, you know, as fast as it should, but, uh, I am very optimistic that we will get there and, you know, I will continue uh, like the the old stonemason whittling away at this thing until we get to that sort of watershed moment and the rock breaks. You know, I'm, I'm a, people will be happy to know I continue to be involved in, in professional education for many of my colleagues. Um, I just, uh, uh, I'm filming this next month, a an entire series for the American Academy of Family uh, Physicians, so the AFF, AAFP, the largest organization for uh, family medicine physicians. Um, and in November, I will be one of the leading faculty members for the new physician education program for OBC medicine. So I will be um, one of the guest faculties at the National uh, uh, International so- uh, Society meeting. And I will be leading a lot of the curriculum and education efforts for all the new doctors who are trying to learn to become obesity medicine specialists. And so uh, these things are happening. Um, we're going to continue to promote uh, enlightened uh, education and an enlightened understanding of these uh, concepts. And we'll get there. It just we won't get there as fast as we'd like to. Well, I'm encouraged just to hear how much how much of a voice you're being given in the in that process in the medical community because like I said if we could clone your outlook, your empathy, your knowledge uh, and just clone that across the across obesity medicine, we'd be in pretty good shape, no pun intended. Um but we'd be in pretty good shape uh and, and so I I just appreciate the work that you're doing, man. It's just awesome. Uh you're, you're, you're too kind and too generous with your comments, but, uh, thank you. Uh, I received that. Um, so, you know, I think we got to wrap up here. So I'd like to, to maybe sort of leave you with a closing question. Um, and, and if you have something for me too, I, uh, no pressure, but if you do, um, I'm happy, happy to take a, a stab at it. Um, where do you think, where do you think the, the, where do you think the future is for this thing? And I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pose it to you in a little bit of an abstract way, in that do you do you think the most promising aspect of sort of the fu- the future of this community is some type of uh, you know leveraging a drug paradigm that we've discussed? Do you think it's do you think it's in something more based in society? Like what do you think is going to be the sort of 
really interesting watershed moment. Maybe we've already experienced it. Maybe we haven't. Maybe it's to come. What, what, what are you looking forward to, optimistic, to come? What do you think is going to be that moment that we all sort of hang our hat on and say, um, wow, that uh, things have really changed? Wow. There's a lot of directions uh, that I could take that. And I, I guess I'll, I'll kind of cheat and answer it two ways. One way that I'm really excited <clears throat> is just compassionate treatment. I mean, just the nature of, of the back and forth that we just had and voices like yours within obesity medicine, just what your involvement in that, the things that you had to say in your approach makes me really excited for just compassionate treatment, which I think, you know, so much of our reticence uh, as humans to go to the doctor is because we're already nervous, scared, whatever. Um, and that there's certainly obesity medicine is certainly no exception. You know, there's also the shame and the failure and the guilt wrapped up around that too. So it's, it makes it much more approachable when the care is compassionate. Now from, from a medicine side of things, what I'm really excited about is the prospect of right now we have like really cookie cutter solutions like terzepatide is a really cookie cutter solution it's it's terzepatide it activates gip and glp1 but for me my physiology my disease um there is an optimal treatment combination treatment of peptides and who knows what else but that exists within my body there's so, so the the idea of the future and a tailored treatment that treats my physiology, I think that's where medicine is moving in general. And I think AI will play a big role in that. Um, so, I mean, from a treatment standpoint, that's what I'm more most excited about is just the idea of personalized treatments. Um, and it goes into that compassionate care because there's a whole subset of this community that feels like we're still doing something wrong because this doesn't work for us like it does everybody else. Um, and they're, they're learning more about that even now with the, with the, you know, the studies studying the receptors, like the malformation of the receptors in certain people's bodies, not binding to the agonist the same way. Um, but just the idea of personalized and tailored medicine that actually treats Dave or actually treats Stevie or actually treats Jen or Callie or share like it, this is your peptide. It's, it's sheratide. It's Davidide. It's, it's, it's tailored for you and tailored for, um, your specific, uh, condition in your body. That's awesome. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. So I, I just appreciate your time tonight, man. I, I really appreciate you. You, uh, well, first of all, just getting to meet you. It's a pleasure to, to get to meet you and, and to, to share some time on your live tonight. I really, really appreciate it. I hope that we can do it again at some point. Um, but wish you all the success. Well, I'll keep a line with you. You know, I like to interact with your stuff over on, on Twitter quite a bit. I found uh, that Twitter is kind of like my happy place. Well, <laughs> Tends to be my tends, that's a bold thing to say. I, I, I you notice how I stopped. It tends to be where I can go and I can nerd out a little bit harder um, because there's just so there's so many of the medical professionals that are over there and 
it's a lot of this, but it's also fun to kind of observe it and learn from it and just hear kind of what, what the people who are in the trenches in the medical community have to say about, you know, whatever trial data is dropping or whatever. So yeah, I'll keep a line with you. And I, I really appreciate your time tonight, buddy. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I will just say uh, just to, to maybe end this on a little bit of a hopeful note for people who, who maybe have spent their whole life doing things that haven't been very effective for them. You know, those people that have been underserved in some capacity, um, we will, we will uh, eliminate obesity. Um, I'm, I am cautiously optimistic it will happen in my lifetime and we will develop uh, vaccines and gene, and gene therapies that will um, address the personal health issues of each individual person, even in a preventative sense. Um, that is coming, I can tell you. And it will probably put me out of business at some point, and that's okay. That'll be a good thing. Hopefully, I'm retired by then. Um, but it is coming, I can tell you. And I know the people that are working on all this stuff. So um, we will figure it out. We will get it. It needs to be it needs to not cost an entire mortgage for someone to access it. Um, and, but, but, uh, it, it is coming and, and the treatments in the meantime will continue to get better. Um, so there is hope and hope is here. It is coming. Um, and I just want to, I want people to sort of hear that and, and just say, thank you for your time, man. Nice to meet you. Uh, make sure you guys follow on the pen, man on Manjaro, uh, on TikTok, YouTube, Give him a like, follow him if you're not already. You can find me always at uh, Dr. Mike Albert, Dr. Michael Albert on social media. Appreciate your time, man. This was such a fun discussion. I didn't know I was going to get so emotional at that point, but hey, it's, you know, it's a good thing. And, uh, you know, had a lot of fun. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much, man. It's great to meet you. All right. Everyone take care. Have a good night.